All right, let's make our way back to our chairs. Come and see. There's a, a family in London who, who had an au pair living with them several years ago. Um, someone who, from Eastern Europe who came to stay and look after their kids and help around the house. And on one particular occasion when the, the parents were out and she was looking after the kids, the kids were really misbehaving upstairs, making a lot of noise. And she, she ran upstairs, furious at them, and barged into their room. And she meant to say, what on earth are you doing? But instead she said, what are you doing on earth? She's a, she's a very you know, deep existential philosophical question to which I'm sure the children said, I don't know, that's a very good question. It'll give me pause for thought. I shall go and stop what I'm doing and go and think about that for a while. Today we're talking about the meaning of life, what the purpose of life is, what you have been created for, or what we as Christians have been set free for. Last week we uh, introduced a Bible passage from Galatians 5 where, we said, where it said that Jesus has set us free. And we talked about what he has set us free from. Uh, Jesus came to set us free from insecurity and vulnerability before God to give us confidence before God. We're not under legalism. We haven't got to perform to be loved. We're loved as it is. But then the question remains, what's he set us free for? Last week we said that, he, that the human heart is like uh, a piece of metal that's bent in on itself. We are twisted inward. We're selfish, self-motivated, tribal creatures who are only interested in self initially. We're rebels of God by birth, the Bible says. And there are different ways that we can deal with our brokenness. One of those ways is we can, with all of our might, bend like a piece of iron, bend our hearts back through moral reformation by trying hard, by helping old ladies download emails and doing other things that people do to care for one another. We can do everything we can to get right. But in doing that, if you bend a piece of metal, with all your strength, it actually weakens it. It makes it more vulnerable because it damages some of the fibers in it. And you know what it's like with metal. If you bend it a few times, it snaps. So, so the answer to the brokenness in the human heart isn't effort, like any good blacksmith. The answer uh, to a twisted piece of metal is to heat it up so much that it becomes malleable. And in the hands of a good blacksmith can become something beautiful, something beautiful. And our hearts, though twisted and bent in on themselves with the, the light and the heat of the gospel, can go from being twisted and bent in on ourselves and rebels of God, but in the hands of our blacksmith can be turned into something beautiful. And so today we're talking about that beautiful, what it is that we've been set free for. We've been set free from insecurity and vulnerability before God, but what have we been set free for? Now, freedom as a concept and an idea, many people have said is, um, it is that it is our society's uh, highest good. It is the thing in our society that if you ask people, they would say it is self-evidently good. doesn't need any explanation. Freedom is always a good thing. More freedom is always going to be a good thing, therefore. And the story of becoming free is almost the last heroic story that we've got left in our society. And to impose restraint on anybody is seen as being cruel and oppressive and against this self-evidently good thing of freedom. And so you often see discussions and the debates in society around changing laws and um, altering what we think about things is often centered around this issue of freedom. So I saw on um, 
you might have seen this recently, Philip Schofield was interviewing a Christian teacher who'd been disciplined and been taken off work for a couple of weeks because he refused to or he deliberately misgendered a child who was a, a girl but wanted to be identified as a boy and this Christian teacher deliberately misgendered her and said girls to a group that uh, she was in. He got in trouble with that and he was on the Philip Schofield show with um, Holly Willoughby, that's right, um, talking about this. And in that discussion, towards the end of it, Philip Schofield got annoyed. And he, he said at the end of the discussion, well, let's get back to 2017 and away from these medieval views. These medieval views. Because to live in this day and age, to insist that there is such a thing as a boy and a girl, and you're, you're decide, that's decided for you by birth, is seen to be oppressive and, cons, you know, and, cons, and adds constraints onto people that are against our ingrained understanding of what freedom is, that we have been set free. And anything that tries to impose itself upon us and take away our freedom is, by definition, bad then, according to our society as it is at the moment. But today, from the book of Galatians, I want to show us that freedom isn't an ultimate goal in itself. That freedom isn't the goal love is serving others is freedom isn't the goal love is and that's expressed through serving one another so we're in the letter to the galatians we've only got two more weeks left this week and next before we conclude this teaching series it's a, it's a letter written to a church in turkey in around 45 ad the earliest letter in the new testament and let's read from galatians 5 verse 13 to 15 this is what paul says it's a short verse today for you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So I want to look at two things today. That freedom isn't the goal, love is, and that's expressed through devotion and through constraint. Let's have a look at that. Freedom for devotion. In verse 13, Paul says, For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. You were called to freedom. As modern people, we love the idea of calling. We are fixated by a sense of destiny, a lot of us. Uh, often when you talk to people, there's a we're often... Oh, this, discuss in such a way to make it clear that we are each of us on our own mini journeys towards discovering our destiny our calling in life a friend of mine said his boss once led a, a staff training day and he, he said to the group the two most important days in your life is the day you're born and the day you discover what you were born for and that attitude is sums up i think how a lot of people approach this idea of calling paul says you were called to freedom just look at this idea. You see, in the Bible, just through sheer number of times the word is a, appears, the word calling has more to do with us becoming a Christian than it does to do with us discovering our destiny and what we're made for. If you're a Christian, you are called by God. You're called by God. You're called to God to be a disciple of Jesus. You're called to follow him. We are set free then for him. We're set free for worship, 
to be devoted to him. To be called is to be set free for him. In the Old Testament, the story of the Israelites, they were trapped in Egypt as slaves. And when God sent Moses to Pharaoh, the initial request was, let my people go out of slavery in order that they might worship me in the desert. And that idea that they were enslaved and they were called out of slavery to worship, to be devoted not to Egypt's economy, not to Egypt's gods, but to their God. That was the heart behind God wanting to liberate them. He called them out of slavery. And that idea is one that's true for Christians as well. That you, if you're a Christian, have been called out of slavery, out of legalism, out of living for self, out of rebellion. But it's not, the emphasis isn't on what you've been called out of. The emphasis is on that you've been called to Him, to be devoted to Him. Worship has more to do with devotion uh, and a devotion that creates dependency. Let me say that again. Worship is about a devotion that creates a dependency. We've been called to worship God. We've been called to be devoted to God. We've been called to be dependent upon Him. And all of us are worshippers of something. We're all devoted to something. The question is just whether or not that devotion brings freedom or brings slavery. Paul says you were called In other words, you were called out to be devoted to God. You were called for freedom. There was an American novelist, a man named David Foster Wallace, who wasn't a a Christian as such. He wrestled with the idea of God. Uh, He was a very successful, popular novelist. He he died in 2008 after a a 20-year battle with depression. He hung himself. But at a university graduation ceremony that he was speaking at, he addressed this topic, and and what he said sums up, I think, the heart of what worship and devotion is about. He says this, Here's something that's weird, but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And pretty much anything that you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. He describes worship as tapping real meaning in life from something. I mean, you might sing songs to Jesus and pray to Jesus but not worship Jesus, because to worship something is to tap real meaning for life from it. It's to be devoted to it. It's to look to it and say, I need you. He goes on to say this, Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. And then he finishes by saying that these desires for these things aren't bad. They're natural. Because we're broken creatures, because we're insecure creatures, we turn good things, money, sex, power not bad in themselves but we turn good things into ultimate things when we tap real meaning in life from them we have been called for freedom not to be devoted to things to enslave us we're freed for devotion 
not to something that destroys, but to something that liberates. That's what Paul says in, in, the, in the verse that we read. You are called to freedom, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. You can, as a Christian, you can do whatever you want. You're free. You're loved by God to live as you please. But Paul says, don't, however, use your freedom to just indulge the appetites of your flesh. We all have those appetites, the things that we, we look to to satisfy us, whether it's just a, a natural appetite like hunger or sleep. Paul says you're free, but don't now just use your freedom as an opportunity, as an excuse to do whatever you want. Uh, I think in another letter that he writes to a church in Greece, he said to them, listen, food is for the stomach, yes, and stomach is for the food, yes. Uh, stomach is for food, yes, but I will not be mastered by anything. We mustn't be mastered by our appetites then. Indulgence in appetites leads to slavery. Devotion to the flesh only leads to imprisonment. I can do whatever I want. Well, yes, you can. You're a Christian. Do whatever you want. You're free. You're loved by God. But not everything that you do with your freedom will bring you freedom. So you're free to, I don't know, Watch porn or read whatever you want. You're free to build a bigger house. You're free to drink and eat. You're free to spend your money on whatever you want. It's free to, free to indulge in all kinds of retail therapy, but those things won't bring you freedom necessarily. And that's what Paul says in these verses. For freedom that you were called, now don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And what comes to mind when I read this is, I think an illustration that I've shared before, but it's particularly vivid. Uh, several years ago, I was walking to the park with Zach, my middle son. And he's, um, he's always been quite a live wire and quite hot-headed. He's quite impulsive, takes after his mother. Uh, and as a result of his impulsion and his inability to discipline and control, we would have to use toddler reins whenever we left the house because you just cannot trust this child. And to walk from our house to the park, you have to walk along a busy, busy road, and I remember one day as we were walking along, a hand on the toddler reins, we got close to the park. And I thought, I think, I think it's safe now. I can let go of the toddler reins and let him run to the park. And so I did. I let go of the toddler reins. I said, there you go, my son. You're free. Free to indulge your appetites. Do whatever you're, you're, you like. Your, your benevolent father has set you free, son. It's for freedom that daddy has called you. And uh, I, I saw him, and I was thinking, how are you going to use your freedom? What are you going to use it for? Are you going to use it to run into the road? You're welcome to do that. It's your choice. Uh, are you going to use your freedom to go to the park? Are you can use your freedom to just head for the hills and leave home? It's up to you. And I saw him. He turned, and he looked at me, and he had this glint in his eye. I could see it. It was a, it was a look that said, you foolish father. I'm free. And he looked at me, and he turned to sprint. But then he stopped, and he instead turned back and held out his hand for me to hold. And I thought, good use of freedom, son. That's a good use of your freedom. You can have more. I think that's what Paul's saying here. You're called for freedom. Now use your freedom, not for the flesh, not just to indulge whatever you want. I can do whatever I want. But instead, use your freedom to love and to serve others. See, freedom isn't the ultimate goal that our society tells us it is. It's not an absolute good in itself. It's what you do with your freedom that counts. Freedom isn't the goal. Love is. A love of God and a love of others. So freedom has to do with devotion, but secondly and lastly, freedom involves constraint. 
which seems contradictory, but it's true. Look at what Paul says again. He says, you're called to freedom, only do not use your freedom. Do not. As soon as he uses the words do not, he's putting constraints. He's saying you're free, but don't. You're like, well, you can't do that. Because our modern understanding of freedom is that freedom is freedom from any external constraint. We can do whatever we want. Freedom in that definition is uh, the freedom of a dust particle just floating in the morning light. But a dust particle that's free from all external constraints isn't actually free. It's still constrained, constrained by its inability to decide what to do with its life, (laughs) if ever it were to think. Uh, It's free to decide where to go. It's just blown here and there by the wind. There's no such thing as freedom without constraint. Actually, every time you love someone, you enter into a voluntary constraint, don't you? Uh, You can be free all you like. But as soon as you say to someone, a boy or a girl, I want to be your boyfriend or girlfriend, I want you to be my spouse, as soon as you do that, you, by doing that, are giving up some of your freedoms. I mean, you don't have to. You could say to someone, I'm happy to be your boyfriend, but, and I, would, you know, I really love you and I'd like to see where this relationship goes. However, you should know that I mean, I'm, I'm free. I'm a free, en- a free agent, a free entity. And I'm, I might not call you for days at a time if I don't want to. I might kiss other people in the time that I'm with you if I want to because I'm free. To which your partner might say, well, that's lovely. You can have that kind of freedom, but we won't have a relationship. <laughs> um, it won't be with me if you do want a relationship. As soon as you say to someone, will you marry me? I love you. You're, uh, you're voluntarily giving up some of your freedom to enter into a relationship. See, freedom apart from g- constraint isn't Real And the gospel then frees us, not from constraints, the gospel frees us to decide what those constraints are that we want for our lives. See, the gospel comes to us and it reorientates us. It reorients us from an inward focus. It bends us and melts us out so that we're not so inwardly focused. Because all the while that we're inwardly focused... Any outward focus that we have only ever leads to idolatry. We end up worshipping things that aren't God. And so the gospel frees us from an inward focus to an upward focus. That means from that position of worship, we can then serve the people around us rather than use them. And so the question in my mind is then, what does it look like to use your constraints to serve and to love? I mean, Paul says, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. He's saying, choose this as a constraint, the constraint of being willing to love and serve people. So what does it look like to serve people? Well, I think in the verses that we read, there's three things. It looks like um, yourself, it involves yourself, it involves your speech, and it involves the spirit. Let's look at these. Verse 14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. So to love others, we're to do that in the way that we love ourselves. Now, in modern times, we've psychologized that idea. So to love yourself these days means to like yourself and to not give yourself such a hard time and to look yourself in the mirror and say, you're a swell guy or gal. That's what it means to love yourself. And a lot of us, understandably, struggle with that because we think, but I don't really like myself. I do things that I'm not proud of. I hurt people. I leave a wake of destruction sometimes. Uh, If I'm to love others in the way that I love myself, well, I don't think I'm a particularly nice person. So what do I do? Well, Jesus, when he uses this phrase, 
he makes it clear that the way we're to love ourselves isn't in this category necessarily. It doesn't have to be. It can be. But it isn't in this category of psychological affirmation and appreciation for one's brilliance. No, he says, no one ever, I'm trying to remember the phrase because I didn't write it down, no one ever um, didn't, I mean, you feed yourself, you clothe yourself, no one ever hated their own body, hated their own life. She says, Jesus says, the way you love yourself is you give yourself food. You care for your body. You get sleep. In other words, the way we're to love others in the way that we love ourselves is practical. So you serve others practically as you serve yourself. You love others practically as you love yourself practically. I have a friend who um, is part of the church over in Brighton, Church of Christ the King there. And he tells me that for, for a year in his life, I think just before he got married, he had a year of double purchases. Everything, every time he bought something for himself, he only bought it for himself if he could afford two, so he would buy a second and give it away. He said, apart from anything else, it really made him assess what he was buying. Because <laughs> he thought, can I afford this twice? I'm buying a pair of trainers. Can I afford two pairs of trainers? I'm buying a CD. Can I afford two CDs? And he would always buy two so that he could give one away. It's a demonstration. As the way I love myself, I'm also going to love others. Uh, or maybe it looks like just practically serving in the church, the community that you're a part of, where God's put you. Paul's writing this letter to a church, so primarily he's addressing Christians. Because Paul has in his mind a vision of what God's people are supposed to be like. That looks very different from how many of us are raised thinking about church. Or it looks very different from our consumerist approach to church a lot of the time. Paul says, use your freedom to serve one another, to care for one another, to look after one another. I mean, in this church, I suppose, on, on Sundays, because so much is involved in just our gathering time, we have rotors and we say to people, oh, could you serve on a rotor? Serving on a rotor isn't about doing a job. It's not about fulfilling a task. We don't do it because we think, oh, if, no one, if, if I don't do it, no one will. I suppose I better. Or... Or, or sometimes people use the word volunteer in churches. It's not bad. But people say, we need some volunteers. Can we have any volunteers for this? The spirit of volunteerism, good though it might be, I mean, London 2012 is the classic example, isn't it? When it was just thousands of people volunteered to help make the London Olympics happen. Great. Good on, good on them. But I, I want to suggest that what Paul's talking about is different from doing a job on a rotor. It's different from volunteering. He says, through love serve one another serving someone is different from volunteering it it can include that of course but serving is a mind shift a mindset shift it says whatever I do I'm doing it as a way of serving you and treating you with importance of elevating you serving others is actually the path towards Christian maturity as we look up and worship God and then look out and love others, we become more mature in Christ. Um, bizarrely, I, I heard some people commenting on this. when They, they mentioned that the, the animators of Disney films often understand this when they draw um, children and adults. So you take the Lion King as an example. The young Simba, the young lion cub, is often pictured as being like this, kind of quite into himself, um, quite you know, startled and very self-oriented whereas the older lion Mufasa is often chest out looking outwards to the world 
So just in the way that animators draw it, and when Simba transitions from a, a baby lion to an adult lion, there's this moment where his, his demeanor changes. He goes from being self-oriented to outward. The sermon's not about the Lion King. Oh, it's useful. It's interesting, isn't it? Perhaps. Maybe just to me. But it's the, the point is that serving others is a path towards maturity. It's laying down your life, giving up your rights in order to help others. How would I like to be loved? How would I like to be greeted when I go somewhere for the first time? How would I like to be greeted by my family? Oh, that's how we greet people at church. What kind of coffee do I like to drink? That's the coffee we serve. How would I like to parent my kids and love them? Well, that's how we serve. We love kids and bless them. How would I like the town that I live in to treat me? Well, that's how we serve the town. It's just that, that focus. So serving others through love looks like involves yourself, loving others as you love yourself. Also, verse 15 involves your speech. Because Paul says, If you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by another. One leads to the other, right? If you're biting, backbiting, nitpicking, competing, bite, he says eventually you'll be consumed. One follows the other. You, you get it. You bite, you're consumed. But it's also true in the reverse. We serve people through love by what we say, by how we speak, by how, with what dignity we give, by how we encourage, by how we strengthen, by how we remind people of truth. And we're very quick to be down on ourselves. And sometimes we need people to redirect us and point out truth to us. I was talking to someone the other week. Um, no one here, so it's okay. And after, after the sermon, they came and spoke to me. And they said to me, oh, thank you for preaching. And uh, what you said about this person here was brilliant because they're a, they're a failure and they always do these things wrong and so do I. And they just went for a few minutes just talking about their own faults. And, and it just kind of struck me. I got in the car and Amy was sat there. And I went, did you hear how self-critical they were? She said, yeah. It was really st- striking. Well, to speak truth is to acknowledge that and say, did you, did you hear what you just said about yourself? The Bible says that's not true that you're loved, that you're significant in Christ, you're, you're secure, you're accepted by him. Speaking truth is a way of serving one another. It eventually leads over time, I mean, if you encourage someone long enough, it produces courage in them. I mean, we know it in the opposite. If I'm constantly being down on my kids, over time they will wither as individuals and lack confidence. Well, it's true on the reverse. I serve people by pointing out good things, by encouraging, by offering hope by standing alongside, by speaking the truth. And over time, it will reap a harvest. We believe that. And then lastly, in the, what it looks like to serve, it, it involves yourself, it involves your speech, but it also involves the Spirit. And um, We didn't read this because there's a number of verses, but from verse 16 down to 26, Paul then lists this whole kind of description of what life looks like indulging in the appetites of the flesh versus walking by the Spirit. Walking by the Spirit involves remaining close to God and the fruit that follows. The fruit that follows a life of being devoted to God and walking in step with the Spirit is the fruit of self-forgetfulness. We become more outward. I mean, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. That's what happens, that's what gets produced in a Christian when they live a life devoted to God. And as we walk in step with the Spirit, 
over time, like fruit on a tree, because of it, by virtue of being attached to the trunk, the branch produces fruit. By virtue of the Christian walking in step with the Spirit, by being devoted to God, loving God, over time, it produces fruit. And the fruit is all useful for outward service. Love, joy, peace, patience. It's not, it's not a selfish, self-motivated, it's other-centered. I mean, some of the kindest people I know... Uh, who people who are genuinely kind don't know they're being kind. They just they've forgotten about themselves. They're not overly interested in themselves. They're just kind for the sake of it because that's what that's what happens. And I look at them and think, well, that's that's maturity right there. And it's produced as you walk in step with the Holy Spirit. And actually, some of that self forgetfulness then leads to the courage that we often associate with walking in the Spirit. That phrase to many Christians, keeping in step with the Spirit or walking in the Spirit, that phrase for a lot of Christians just makes them think of some of the supernatural daring activities, like praying for someone who's not a Christian or prophesying over someone or, pray, or, or seeing someone healed. And of course it involves that. But that's almost what happens later. As you walk in step with the Spirit, that stuff just flows out of you naturally as well as you forget yourself. Because I'm not fascinated with myself. Therefore, I'm interested in you. And if you've got a need, I'll look to pray without a second thought to my fear sometimes. And Charles Spurgeon put it well, uh, the 19th century Baptist preacher, when he said, for every one look that we take at ourselves, we should take nine more at the Savior. That's what it means to walk in step with the Spirit. So freedom isn't the ultimate goal. Love is expressed through service. And we get there by loving others as we love ourselves. We get there not by biting and devouring one another with our speech, but by encouraging. And we get there by walking in step with the Holy Spirit. And by choosing to love, we are swapping one constraint for another. Previously, outside of Christ, we were constrained by the goal of loving self and of fulfilling our needs. Now in Christ, we're free not to indulge the appetites of the flesh, but we're free to put on the constraint of love. I want to read to you um, a story to finish from my favorite book of the year. It's a book called The Shantung Compound, and it was written in the 50s by a man named Langdon Gilkey. Langdon Gilkey was an American academic living in China, in Shanghai, during the Second World War. And along with other um, foreign nationals, Brits, Europeans, Americans, um, when the Japanese invaded China during the Second World War, many of these foreign nationals were put into internment camps, labor camps. But this one that he was put into was essentially, it was just a, a guarded perimeter. And everyone within the community had to learn to fend for themselves and construct some kind of society. And Langdon Gilkey went in as an atheist and as an academic, very clever ideas about the world and God and human nature. But through his interaction with people, became convinced of God and the Christian message and our need of it because we are all inherently selfish and self-seeking, he saw. But when, when, when push comes to shove, when we're stripped of our comforts, we're all about self, 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 self. And we need the gospel to enable us to be constrained by love rather than constrained by need. But he describes the day that they were rescued, the day that they were set free, and then what happened afterwards. This is what he said. The day, they'd been in the camp for two, year, two and a half years, the day, August 16th, 1945, 
was clear, blue, and warm as such a day should have been. We all began our chores of cooking, stoking, and cleaning up slops as usual. About the middle of the morning, however, word flashed around camp that an Allied plane had been sighted. The plane that had been sighted, an American plane, was headed straight for us. So we flung our stirring paddles down beside the cauldrons, left the carrots unchopped on the tables, and tore after the boy who gave us the news to the ball field. This miracle was true. There it was, now as big as a gull and heading for us from the western mountains. As it came steadily nearer, the elation of the camp grew and grew and grew. 1,500 people. This meant that the Allies were probing into our area, not a slow thousand miles away. And people began to shout to themselves, to everyone around them, to the heavens above, their exhilaration. Why, it's a big plane with four engines. It's coming straight for the camp. And look how low it is. Look, there's the American flag painted on the side. Why, it's almost touching the trees. It's turning around again. It's coming back over the camp. Look, look, they're waving at us. They know who we are. They've come to get us. At this point, the excitement was too great for any of us to contain. It surged up within us, a flood of joyful feelings sweeping aside all of our restraints and making us its captives. Suddenly, I realized that for some seconds, I'd been running around in circles, waving my hands in the air and shouting at the top of my lungs. On becoming aware of these antics, I looked around briefly to see how others were behaving. It was pandemonium, the more so because everyone like myself was looking up and shouting at the plane and was unconscious of what he or anyone else was doing. Staid folk were embracing others to whom they'd barely spoken for two years. Proper middle-aged Englishmen and women were cheering and swearing. Others were laughing hysterically or crying like babies, all moved to an ecstasy of feeling that carried them quite out of their normal selves as the great plane banked over and circled the camp three times. This plane was our plane. It was sent here for us to tell us that the war was over. It was that personal touch the assurance that we were again included in the wider world of men, that our personal histories would resume, which gave those moments their supreme meaning and their violent emotion. Amazing picture of what it feels like to be freed after years of enslavement. For the Christian, that's what's happened. You've been called out of slavery to sin, to the world, to insecurity and instability, to vulnerability. You've been called out of that to this God who says, for freedom I've called you. So what do we do with our freedom now? Well, he, he goes on to describe what happened to these people after leaving the camp and how many of them lost their way and struggled for a sense of meaning and purpose because they'd been freed from a camp. But what for? What was the freedom all for? Um, Many people will remember church life in this country before the freedom of what became called the charismatic renewal hit the scenes. Church was a very formal affair. Everyone addressed one another by sir and madam and by, were on surname terms with each other. It wasn't warmth and didn't feel like a family. And part of what happened when God broke in, and I think in, in this country, and particularly in the 70s and 80s, was the shackles of a religion that was bound in on itself and formal and wasn't like family like the bible like what we see in the new testament that was off and we're free to be ourselves for good or for bad we're free to worship god how we please we can rediscover the gifts that god gives us and that's important but the question then comes but what have we been freed for been freed from 
Get that. What are we free for? What's the purpose? What's the point? Paul says, only don't use your freedom as an opportunity of the flesh, but through love serve one another. And what Langdon Gilkey found, he said this for these different people. He said, even more than what we are called to do in this service also is our ever-present, a task that no fate can remove. Ah, here it is. Our particular jobs of salesman, professor, or senator may become useless in a camp or even in the next moment in history. But our neighbor is always with us in the city, in the country, or in the camp. If the meaning of life on its deepest level is the service of God, which in turn means the service of the neighbor's needs and community with him, then this is a task that carries over into any new situation. One of the strangest lessons that our unstable time in the camp teaches us is that often the unwanted moments in our lives are the places where God's creativity is most often at work. Only in God is there an ultimate loyalty that does not breed injustice and cruelty and a meaning from which nothing in heaven or earth can separate us. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, building on, I think, what Langdon Gilkey says, that meaning in life is to give glory to God and serve our neighbors, to love one another. The person in front of you is, your, is the purpose of your Christian life, the, the reason you've been given gifts. But Paul says this, the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this. The love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Freedom isn't the ultimate goal. Love is expressed through service of others. And in doing that, we become like Christ. We lay ourselves down before others to serve them. Because we've concluded this, that one has died for all. So all has died. So all have died. The way we love one another is an expression of how he has loved us. We love because he first loved us. We serve because he first served us. We're going to take time now to give thanks to Jesus, to break bread and remember his death on the cross for us. At the back and at the front, we have tables with some bread and some juice. And as the band come, we're gonna, they're going to play, lead us in a time of singing. And we're going to take a moment to give thanks to Jesus for his death that set us free for service of others and the good news that that is. Let's stand to our feet and I'll pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you love us so much that you've not just freed us from something, but you've freed us for something else. You've freed us for love. And I ask that you'd help us to be a people who put the needs of others above our own, that we'd serve one another in the way that we uh, behave practically, in the way that we speak to each other, and the way that we're devoted to you in the life that we lead in the Spirit. Please help us, Almighty God. Amen.